Well, when we began to understand that the Feast of Dedication was an important thing for us to be mindful of, I gave a sermon on that, and it's fairly new to us. I think this is only our third year, uh, maybe fourth, but I think the third, and uh, introduced some thoughts in that sermon about the dedication of the temple. And we saw that in John 10, Christ was walking in the temple uh, during the Feast of Dedication, and it says it was winter, and he talks there about his sheep are only one fold, his fold, and we know that the sheep of God from many scriptures form the temple of God. Uh, there was There have been physical temples, and there are spiritual temples. We are physical, but he says our bodies are not are the temple of his spirit. So anything to do with the temple is very important. And there's where I want to start today in showing some of the things that occurred when God was uh, preparing his temples and how they were dedicated, because it gives us an insight as to what our mind, heart, and attitude should be today. I will not go through chapter after chapter in detail all that God told Moses in preparing the uh, Ark of the Covenant as well as the tabernacle in the wilderness. And chapter after chapter, he goes through and gives great finite detail about the gold and the silver, how it was to be shaped, uh, the, the types of flowers and so on. Uh, the skins that had to be put on the walls of the altar. I'm getting a little feedback here. Um, anyway, uh, the Bible is a great summary of 6,000 years, well, really 4,000 years, plus the prophecies having to do with these last 2,000, so it covers six plus the millennium, so really, it's a, a history and a prophecy of 7,000 years. And here it is, summarized in one rather small book, really, when you compare it to some of the big books of the world. And commentaries about the Bible, I know some of them have volume after volume of stacked this long will fill a whole bookcase just trying to explain this book and doing a lousy job of it at that. So, the point I want to make there is that if God spent that many chapters detailing something that we have never seen, the ark, the tabernacle, we may see them again. In fact, it says heaven will open there in Revelation 12 and we'll see the ark of God. I'm not sure uh, that it is buried here somewhere on the earth. Everyone's looking for it. It may be, but if so, it's going up there, and the heavens will open, and we'll see it. So, uh, exactly what will happen, we can only read and perhaps speculate to some degree on those things. But with all that detail, let's go to Numbers uh, chapter 6, as I say, I won't go into all the detail, but you've seen it, we've read it, uh, just so much 
that went on chapter after chapter. But it's not really, when it's all said and done, about the gold or the silver or the ark. It was about the people. And if you read the book of Hebrews, Paul talks quite a bit about this. And he translates all that went on back there to us and how we are the temple of God. And therefore, uh, he takes that which was and puts it upon us as the modern-day spiritual temple of God. So when God gives all that detail back here, what he's really doing is talking about what? Us. Because he is very, very concerned about the detail that is put into preparing the temple, the people of God, or the bride of Christ, if you will. There are several different analogies he uses to describe us in Scripture, but the temple is one of the primary ones mentioned by Paul in Ephesians, uh, other places, and very much so in the book of Hebrews. So here in, chapter, in verse 22 of chapter 6 in Numbers, it says, And the Eternal spake to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, On this wise you shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them. Now this is the form uh, and the attitude they are to come to the dedication of the Ark, the Covenant, and so on. So he said, Speak to them this way. The Eternal bless you and keep you. The Eternal make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Now, this instruction is given clear back here, but what is one of God's chief gripes about the end-time church in Revelation 3? That we are so Laodicean, so lukewarm, so self-righteous, that he will, will not let his face shine upon us, and he turns his face from us. So there's a lot that happens between number six, when this instruction was given, and all the iterations through the history of Israel until today, and we're still suffering the same problems that he was really warning against in instruction in a positive way of what to do. Clear back here. Do those things which will cause God to be gracious and cause His face to shine. The Eternal lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And they shall put My name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So, that was the attitude with which they were to come. And in chapter 7, he says, And it came to pass on the day that Moses had fully set up the tabernacle, and had anointed it, and sanctified it, and all the instruments thereof, both the altar and all the vessels thereof, and had anointed them and sanctified them. So they had gone through all that preparation of bringing all the materials together to get it ready. Uh, God had given the uh, technicians the, the skill and the ability to make things the way He wanted them. Precise, very precise. So once all that preparation had been done, and Moses then uh, set it up, sanctified it, got it all ready, 
that the princes of Israel, heads of the house of their fathers, who were the princes of the tribes, and were over them that were numbered, offered. And then he goes through, and in a period of 12 days, the leading or the head of each of the tribes of Israel would bring a special offering. And this went on for 12 days, the head of each tribe, Ephraim, Manasseh, Gad, Asher, and so on, on their day, brought forth an offering. I'm not going to go through there, but it consisted of animals and gold and silver, uh, all kinds of things that they brought with their offering. This was a big deal, you know. Goes on twelve days. We sing for eight, and maybe by the end of eight days of singing ten songs a day, our voice is ready to croak. I don't know, but this went on day after day. And it says in verse eighty-four, this was the dedication of the altar in the day when it was anointed by the princes of Israel. Uh, twelve charges of silver, twelve silver bowls, twelve spoons of gold, and then he gives the weight of all the gold to show that this was not a small thing. It wasn't uh, everybody taking the gold out of their teeth and turning them in. Uh, this was a major undertaking. Chapter 8, The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you light the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light over against the candlestick. And Aaron did so. He lighted the lamps there over against the candlesticks as the Eternal commanded Moses. And somewhere here, is it right here? I don't see it, uh, but it's here somewhere that they used olive oil. It might have been, might have been another place. Doesn't matter. But they had the golden candlesticks filled with oil and they lighted the lamps. Uh, oil representing, of course, today we understand the Spirit of God. The work of the candlesticks was beaten gold and the shaft thereof and the flowers thereof were beaten work. Very, very intricate and fancy. When you make gold flowers, uh, it requires a great deal of skill to cause a flower to come out of a pile of gold. So he made the candlestick that way. And then the priests had to shave all the hair off their whole bodies, down in verse 7, make themselves completely clean and put on clean clothes, uh, so this was something that took a great deal of time, went into great detail in dedicating the altar and the ark. Second Chronicles 7, there's a little more there. As I said, I don't want to take a lot of time on this because it is detailed. It would take us hours. But uh, the, the point is the detail that is involved and the cleanliness and all the things that God caused to be done because this represented him. Uh, here's the Feast of Dedication uh, with Solomon. It's a different, different than what we were reading about there with Moses. But here in Second Chronicles 7, uh, when Solomon had made an end of no, I, I want to go back before that. I want to go back before that. Um, let's go back to 6 anyway. Uh, 
And here he said, then said Solomon, well, let's go up. I, I wanted to catch this part up here uh, in verse 13 of 5. It came to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the eternal. We're building up here to the dedication of the temple that Solomon had built. And you got trumpets and singers. And that's what we're doing today. We're, we're singing with instruments before God uh, on the festival of dedication. It goes on down and says, They praise the eternal for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Uh, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the eternal, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the eternal had filled the house. So when they dedicated the temple, dedicated their hearts to serve God by singing and trumpets and so on, that uh, God made his presence known. Now, I was going to read, where did I write that down? That's what was bugging me here. I was going to back to where First uh, Chronicles, before we get to this a little bit. Because, you know, David had wanted to build a temple to God. And God did not let him do it. And here in chapter 28 of First Chronicles, let's catch this before we get on with Solomon. Then David the king stood up upon his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me, I had in my heart to build an house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the eternal and for the footstool of our God, and had made ready for the building. So he saw the importance of what Moses had done in following God's detailed instructions in making uh, the ark and... Uh, all of those things in Moses' day, and he wanted to make a place to put those, and a place of rest for them. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name, because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. So as much as David was a man after God's own heart, God restricted him from building the temple of God. I think that's a very, very important thing for us to recognize because we have seen and shall see that God wants a temple built today, both a spiritual temple in us and very, very likely a physical temple as well. I think that's pretty clear. But we have to be accounted worthy to do that. It isn't just because you want to go do it that you're allowed to. God is going to separate out those who have not bowed their knee to Baal, uh, at least 7,000, I would say, and maybe more, 10% of what was and worldwide, essentially, to come and build his temple. And he says their self-righteousness will go away and their righteousness will be of him, there in the last verse of Isaiah 54. So David, as close to God as he was, in all the Psalms he wrote, in the way he worshipped God and everything else, he had had some problems in his life, and one of them is he liked to kill people too much. And God said because he was a bloody man, he would not be allowed to build the temple. But it was in his heart to do so. So we might have a heart to do something, but 
what about our lives? And will we be counted worthy? He even tells us there in Matthew 24 that when you see all these horrible things beginning to come upon the earth, and it's time to be protected by God to go to a place of safety when the temple is defiled there and the tribulation starts, he says, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape all these things. Just because we're there. See, that will be people that he's talking to there who have already built the temple. They will be the people who have built Jerusalem. That will be done when that abomination is set up. And then he says, flee from that abomination. And that can't occur until the temple in Jerusalem are there. So the flight to Zion or to the place of safety occurs after we've already built the temple and Jerusalem. And another separation is made right there. Even though you've been there and pushed wheelbarrows or cooked or whatever you did to help with the effort, there will be a time there when Christ says, I will account some worthy and some I will not. Some will go back in the house to get something. Uh, somebody will go contrary to his instruction and not make it. They'll be killed. So this is a big deal back here for us to pay attention to uh, and whether God accounts us worthy or not. And he used David as an example who was not worthy to build that temple. Of course, David is going to be in the heavenly temple. God forgave all his sins. He'll be resurrected, and he will be king over all Israel throughout eternity. So these things of the past that David may have done and problems he had will all be forgiven and forgotten, and already have been for that matter. But God wants his temple built a certain way, and it has to be by every word of God. Now, that's New Testament teaching. Walk as Christ walked, think as he thought, bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, and we all have a long way to go to do that. But God can give us skill in so doing if we call on him. He had to give the craftsman extra skill to get the ark, uh, the, the tabernacle and everything built just as he wanted it. Human beings did not have sufficient skill to do it. So God had to give them help. Now, translate that. You and I have been commissioned to build the temple of God in our bodies, and we are utterly incapable of it. We need skill that can be added from God through His Holy Spirit. You and I cannot do it on our own. We don't have enough skill to spiritually perform what needs to be performed. That's why we go to God and say, give me help, give me strength, give me wisdom and understanding so that I can know how to build the way I should build. And we have to do that as a continual thing because the Spirit of God has to be renewed in us day by day because as human beings, if it is not renewed day by day, we begin to drift away from God. And we can do that in momentarily, where our minds can begin to go places they shouldn't go. Happens so very, very easily, like falling off a log. Howbeit the eternal God 
of Israel chose me before all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. Verse 4. For he's chosen Judah to be the ruler, and of the house of Judah, the house of my father. So he says, in spite of this injunction God made against me about building the temple, he still made me king, and my domain is to go on forever. I'll never lack a man to sit on David's throne. So, yes, he had his faults, he had his problems, but he also had a very high calling from God. Verse 5, And of all my sons, for he's given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the eternal over Israel, and that he was going to build it. Then he instructs Solomon in verse 9, And you, Solomon, my son, know you the God of your father, and serve him with a perfect heart, and with a willing mind. Paul uses those things where he tells us to be of a ready mind. Ready, willing, same thing. The instruction never changes. It just intensifies in the New Testament. For the eternal searches all hearts and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found of you. He uses the exact same words in uh, Jeremiah, where he says, Seek me with all your heart, and then you will find me, and I will be found of you. I will make myself willing. I will make myself to be found. So it's a two-way thing there. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Take heed now. Listen carefully. Think about what I'm saying, he says. For the Eternal has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. We made a covenant with God that our bodies would be the temple of His Spirit. So he says, take heed and build it and be strong and do it. And then David this must have been hard for him in some respects. He gave the pattern of how it had to be done, all the, the architectural drawings, if you will, to Solomon and said, go do it. Verse 19, all this said David, the eternal made me understand in writing by his hand upon me and even all the works of this pattern. And David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and of good courage and do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for the eternal God, even my God, will be with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the services of the house of the eternal. Now, that's a promise to you and me. Is it not? What did he tell those who were to build the end-time temple there in Haggai and Zephaniah and several different places? Be strong. Fear not. Uh, be of good courage and work. Same thing David told Solomon. So that hasn't changed. Now that's speaking in Haggai and Zechariah and, and other scriptures where those things are mentioned to the end time people who will be building the temple of God. The physical one as well as the spiritual. Now let's go and see what David had to say here in chapter 29 and verse 10. Wherefore, David blessed the Eternal before all the congregation. 
And David said, Blessed be you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Eternal, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Eternal, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of you, and you reign over all. And in your hand is power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. God had to give extra strength and help that they could build. And he will give us extra strength and help. David recognizes that. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. God didn't give the strength to the gold and the silver. He gave it to the people who worked it. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of you and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners. Paul called us pilgrims and ambassadors. As were all our fathers, our days on the earth are as a shadow and there is none abiding. O Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build a house for your holy name comes of your hand and is all your own. He tells us in Isaiah 45 that all the gold and the silver is his. Uh, or is it there where I'm speaking of? Um, it says that in Haggai, thing too. Uh, I know also, my God, that you tried the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me and the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now have I seen with joy your people, which are present here, to offer willingly to you. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of your people and prepare their heart to you. So he's calling on them forever. It comes clear on down to today to remember the words that he is saying here. And to give Solomon, my son, a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, your statutes, and to do all these things and to build the palace for the which I have made provision. He's calling on God because David knew what he had in mind. He knew his heart, he knew his mind, he knew what he wanted to do, he knew he couldn't do it, so he is probably being very emotional here in telling Solomon, do it like God would have you. Do it like I wanted to do it but can't. Get it done right, my son, in other words. David said to all the congregation, verse 20, Now bless the eternal your God, and all the congregation bless the eternal God of their fathers, and worship the Lord and the King, and sacrifice sacrifices. Verse 22, Did eat and drink before the eternal on that day with great gladness. Uh, verse 23, Then Solomon sat on the throne of the eternal as king instead of David his father, and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. Now we go to the second book of Chronicles. Uh, here in chapter 2, 
Solomon determined to build a house for the name of the Eternal and a house for his kingdom. Now, he tells us there in Haggai to do the same thing. So, we can be instructed from this Old Testament account in what is to be done here in the end time. And all these things were written to us upon whom the ends of the world will go. Verse 4, Behold, I build a house to the name of the Eternal my God to dedicate it to Him, so it will be dedicated, and to burn sweet incense and all the things that would be done. And the house which I build is great, for great is our God above all gods. So this house needed to reflect the character of God. Now what does he say about the former temple in Haggai and Zechariah? that the latter temple would be greater than the former temple. That we have to do better, and I've emphasized that for years. It has to be better than what was before. We can't recreate worldwide and expect God to turn His face and bless it. Somehow we've got to do better than what we were there. That's what Revelation 3 is all about. So he's saying, do this with great respect. It's the house of the great God. But who is able to build him a house, seeing the heaven and heavens of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a house, save only to burn sacrifice before him? Solomon was still humble here. He had some trouble later on in losing some of that. He began to build a house in chapter 3 at Jerusalem and Mount Moriah, where the Eternal appeared to David his father, and so on. And in verse 4, uh, he overlaid it with pure gold, uh, overlaid the house, the beams, the posts, verse 7, the doors thereof with gold. I don't think it's to be taken lightly that the gold that God is going to turn up here at the end will be used to cover the temple again. It's not going to just be a plain old modern architecturally designed building. It will have a pattern that's in Ezekiel 40 through 48, and he's going to show us all the gold that is necessary to cover it with. That gold is there, waiting to be shown at the right time. I don't really expect it to show until things change politically on the earth. We cannot yet build a temple. We don't yet even have the land to do it on. We don't have the materials assembled to do it. And God has not made a wall of fire yet to protect what is to be done. Uh, the man that I think who has sorted all of this out, whose hand God has led uh, to find the, the right spot, is scared to death really, to even turn it up because he knows that all the governments of the world uh, are going, and the Indians, everybody, are going to come after it. Therefore, it's not been shown. But when the time has come and God is ready and he protects the area, runs the heathen out, brings his people in and protects it, then it'll be time for it to show up so that the temple can be built. And the world can take their satellite pictures and everything they want to of it, and they can see what's being done, and they're going to learn that God is God when they see all this happening. 
I think we were a little early in hoping that we would find this over these last some years that we've been involved with it. But uh, when the time is right, and it can and will be protected, God will take care of it. So, I backed off and I'm waiting for him, and waiting for these things to occur, so it will show up at the right time. Um, where did I want to pick this up now? Verse chapter 5, Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the eternal was finished, and Solomon brought in all the things that David his father had dedicated. He had assembled everything that needed to be used to build that temple, and then they got the job done. Now, let's see. Uh, they they did the dedication, and Solomon says here in verse in chapter six, uh, the the eternal has said that he would dwell in the thick darkness, but I have built him a house of habitation for you, and a place for your dwelling forever. That's what David had said he wanted to do. And the king turned his face and blessed the whole congregation, and he blessed the Lord God of Israel with his hands fulfilled, that which he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, and Jerusalem had been chosen. Now, when it came time to dedicate, he prayed a prayer, Second Chronicles 6, and I want to go through this. Because there is very, very much in here that applies to us as we are the pre-temple builders. He said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in the heaven or in the earth, which keep covenant and show mercy to your servants that walk before you with all their hearts. We are admonished over and over in the prophecies to walk before God with all our hearts. That was the prayer of the temple dedication. Is there a big deal made about all of this? Do we take these days lightly? Or is there something pretty serious here about the Feast of Dedication that we ought to be paying attention to? That's why I'm going through and showing how much detail and how much prayer and how much dedication and how much heart went into what had to be done. You which have kept with your servant David my father that which you have promised him, and spoke with your mouth, and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Didn't I read something recently um, where it was talking about getting discouraged or frustrated or whatever and remembering the works of old, the things that God had done in the past? So here we are. We've been delayed in building the temple, as I said recently, for about 17 years from the time we set forth our hand to come here to do it. It's been delayed, and you can get frustrated, discouraged, unbelieving, whatever. So what do you do? You go back to the works of old. Solomon is doing that right here. You told my father, you spoke with your mouth, and now you're fulfilling it with your hand as it is this day. You're doing what you said you would do, Father. And we're sitting here saying, Father, please do what you've said you will do, and then we can go back here and read the things that he said he would do that he did and take courage from it. 
Now therefore, o eternal God of Israel, keep with your servant David my father that which you have promised him, saying, There shall not fail you a man in my sight to sit upon the throne of Israel, yet so that your children take heed to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. And he shows that there are conditions involved. Now then, O eternal God of Israel, let your word be verified, which you have spoken to your servant David. Does he tell us in Isaiah not to give him any rest until he does these things? And he's made us lots of promises in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel that we should be calling upon him to fulfill in building the temple, just as Solomon was here. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? What does he tell us in Zechariah 2? I will come and dwell among you. Emmanuel, God with us. Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Kind of pitiful compared to the rest of the universe. Have respect, therefore, to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O eternal my God, to hearken to the cry and the prayer which your servant prays before you. Now, he's standing with his arms outstretched before the whole congregation of Israel when he's making this prayer. That your eyes may be open upon this house day and night, upon this house day and night, upon the place whereof you have said that you would put your name there, to hearken to the prayer which your servant prays toward this place. Hearken, therefore, to the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel, which they shall make toward this place. Hear you from your dwelling place, even from heaven. And when you hear, forgive. Same things we're told to do all the way through. This, this is a prayer that really, if you're having trouble praying, wouldn't hurt to come back and read once in a while. As a prayer. If a man sin against his neighbor, and an oath be laid upon him to make him swear, and the oath come before your altar in this house, then hear you from heaven, and do and judge your servants by requiting the wickedness, by recompensing his way upon his own head, and by justifying the righteous, by giving him according to his righteousness, which he says in Ezekiel 33 and 4 and other places he will do. And if your people Israel be put to the worst before the enemy, because they have sinned against you, and shall return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this house. We had sinned. We were scattered. Now he says, come back to the church of God, the temple of God, spiritual level, and pray, confess your sins, and turn to God. Then hear you from the heavens and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again into the land which they gave, which you gave to them and to their fathers. We're waiting right now for a gathering of people from all over the world who have been called of God to come back to this land that was given to our fathers and build his temple. When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against you, yet if they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin, when you do afflict them, then hear you from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of the people Israel. Was not Elijah used to shut off the rain when he prayed to God at a time of forgiveness? Did not God give rain? Uh, the two witnesses will shut off rain as they please, as Elijah did, as a type of Elijah. 
and it won't rain until they say so. God's going to do the same thing again. He's used that all through history. If there be dearth in the land, if there be pestilence, if there be blasting or mildew, locusts or caterpillars, read the book of Joel. It says all this is going to come. Turn to God with all our hearts, with weeping and gnashing and fasting, and He will turn and bless us as He never has before. The story is over and over throughout the Bible. Then what prayer or what supplication soever shall be made of any man or of all your people Israel, when everyone shall know his own sore and his own grief, not somebody else's, and shall spread forth his hands in this house. Then hear you from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render every man according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for only you only know the hearts of the children of men. And he says, when you turn to me with your whole heart, I will turn to you and I'll turn my face back to you and I will bless you like you've never been blessed before. Israel did not do what Solomon prayed here. And they suffered and did have famine and pestilence and did repent. And this cycle occurred many times and it has even today. That they may fear you to walk in your ways so long as they live in the land which you gave to your fathers. How long was it after Christ went back to his father's throne before people began to fall away? And then there was a great falling away. And there were very few left by the time John died, almost 70 years after Christ had started the church. Nearly everyone had fallen away. Same is true today. Nothing has changed. We're going through the exact same thing. And by about 70 years, that had happened. Then God began to raise up knowledge about the next temple that must be built and tell us that we got to do better than what we did in the last 70 years. Look at our own problems. So what does the church do? Looks at everybody else and says, you're the latest sins. And hardly anybody look at their own selves, like Solomon saying, and say, I'm the lay of the sin. I need to get fixed. Verse 31, that they may fear you to walk in your ways so long as they live in the land which you gave unto our fathers. And as I said, he'll even make another separation when it's time to go to a place of safety even after the temple in Jerusalem are built. <coughs> Mankind does not like to obey God. You and I have been given an incredible opportunity, brethren, to be the ones that God first showed what needs to be done and come and set an example to the rest of the church and to the world of what God wants on this earth. That His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I hope that we have great respect for the calling that we have been given and that we think about these. That's why I'm going through it. And all the detail and the time and everything that went into what God caused to be done in regards to His holy places. And we are His holy places. We must take care. Verse 32 
Moreover, concerning a stranger, which is not of your people Israel, but is come from a far country, for your great namesake, and your mighty hand, and your stretched out arm, if they come and pray in this house. So there may be some who come who were not originally called. Doesn't he say, the last hour, go out in the highways and byways and call some more, because there aren't enough that have come up to scratch and have showed up with wedding garments. This is not an easy thing that we're called upon to do. If your people go out to war against their enemies by the way that you shall send them, and they pray unto you toward this city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear you from the heavens their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no man which sins not, and though you be angry with them, and deliver them over to their, before their enemies, and they carry them away captives unto a land far off or near, yet if they bethink themselves in the land whither they are carried captive, and turn and pray to you in the land of their captivity, we're told to come out of Babylon right now, saying, We have sinned, we have done amiss, and have dealt wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart, that's never left out, and with all their soul into the land of their captivity, whether you have carried them captives, and pray toward their land which you gave unto their fathers, and toward the city which you have chosen, and toward the house which I have built for your name. Then hear you from the heavens, even from your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause and forgive your people which have sinned against you. There's hope for all of us. Now, my God, let I beseech you, your eyes be open and let your ears be attent to the prayer that is made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O eternal God, into your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O eternal, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, turn not away the face of your anointed, and remember the mercies of David, your servant. Now that must have been a very moving prayer to God. I don't know whether it's moving you, reading sometimes puts us to sleep. But this was a very powerful solicitation to God that he remember his people and not forget them. And God was listening very, very intently, very carefully to everything that Solomon said here. He was listening more intently than you and I have been as I read this, by far. Want me to show you that? Now, when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Eternal filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Eternal because the glory of the Eternal had filled the Eternal's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Eternal upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement, and worshipped and praised the Eternal, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endures forever. They hadn't been as impressed with Solomon's prayer either as God was. Does this remind you of anything? 
when the priests of Baal stacked all the wood up and couldn't get God to answer. And then Elijah built an altar and poured water all over it in righteousness. And when he prayed, he consumed it all with fire. Same thing happened here. Do you think that there could be something similar to this happen again? When a people who have come and obeyed God, followed His instructions carefully, walked in His sight, back in the land that He gave, that when the temple is dedicated, there may be some fireworks. Wouldn't surprise me in the least. Might frighten me, might scare me, make me fall on my face, but it wouldn't surprise me in the least. Because Elijah is a type yet to come. Verse 12, And the Eternal appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. What will it be like when the temple of your body and mind has been complete and God says, I choose it, and the seventh trump blows? And you're changed in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye. And God says, I accept your work. What an emotional time. What a powerful thing we have ahead of us. I heard your prayer. I choose you. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land... Or if I send pestilence among my people, and he has spiritually on us, and he's about to on our nation physically. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God's promise to us because that has happened to us and it's time to do what he says here. It's a beautiful, that, that verse was put to a beautiful music. It makes great special music. I don't care if a Protestant did write it. Probably did, but it's well written. No. Chapter 8 here. Um, I think I'll move on from this. Uh, it talks more, talks about the seven candlesticks again. Um, let's go to Revelation 1. I'm going to run out of time here if I'm not careful. Here's a message that Christ gave John to give to the New Testament church and specifically to the end-time church because this is basically the early New Testament church was pretty well defunct and gone by this time. So John was writing this to us here at the end. 
He says in verse 10, uh, well, let's go back first of all to verse 4. John to the seven churches in Asia, grace be to you in peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. So this is a message from Christ and from the seven spirits that are before his throne. Now, who are they? Let's read on, and this will be made clear. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Sabbath, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, and names them, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Uh, the Jews, some of them today, are using a candelabra with nine on it. Uh, everywhere we turn, we'll see seven. Uh, the one with nine never even showed up until 1886. It didn't go back to Christ's day. It didn't go back beyond that. Is something that the Jews concocted as a part of Judaism. And about, I think the, the year was 1886 when it was first used. And all it meant was eight days of Feast of Dedication. And the one in the middle wasn't anything about Christ. It was, a, it was what they used. We kept it burning to light the others with as they went through the Feast of Dedication. So I'm, I'm not going to say it's utterly pagan, to have something with eight, we have eight days of dedication uh, to use. But on the other hand, everything in the Scripture talks about the seven churches, and that piece of dedication may have lasted eight days, but it's about the seven churches, about the seven candlesticks, not eight. So he heard this, and it's about the seven churches, and I turned to see the voice, and I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. They glowed, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. You can't look upon the sun and live. You can't look upon Christ in his glory and live. He shines that brightly. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying to me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, did we miss anything here? This is a description of Christ and how he looks. And we are to become like Christ, are we not? Shouldn't we ultimately look like this? Why does he tell us? Let's go keep your finger here. Go back to Matthew 5 for a moment. No, I lost my verse. I'll find it here in a sec. 
uh, verse 14. I can't do that. That's impossible. Oh, I'm in Zechariah. No wonder. I was going to go there, but I didn't go there yet. Okay, verse 14 of Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Christ is the greatest light in the universe, and he tells us that we are to become like him. And our light is to shine before all men, and they might glorify our Father which is in heaven. Now, our light shines by the good things that we do, Christ's light shined when he was on the earth by the good things that he did, and it blinded the people around him. But we are to shine as he shines. We are to be a light to the world. It doesn't say a noise to the world. It's by the good things you do, not the wonderful things you say, that you are a light to the world. But he tells us very clearly that is our job. Uh, Luke 11 Luke 11. And here I want verse 33. No man, when he has lighted a candle, puts it under a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. You don't hide it. You put it out where it can be seen. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is single, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is evil, your body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in you be not darkness. If the whole body, therefore, be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle does give you light. So he tells us to let our light shine very clearly, that we are to shine as Christ shines. Now, until we're made immortal, we won't shine as bright as He does, and maybe never quite as bright. But we're to be shining now as a type of how we will shine then, is where we are. So it describes Him, and He's talking here about the churches. And He says, John says, I fell at his feet as dead. Uh, the light that Christ put out was fearful. He says, don't fear. I'm he that lives and was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore and have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks, which you saw, are the seven churches. He talks about uh, Ephesus in verse 1 of 2, about being in the middle of the seven golden candlesticks. Chapter 5, 
and verse 6. Oh, no, verse, uh, yeah, verse 6, the end of it. Uh, the Lamb, had, which had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So those seven angels are called spirits. They're called stars. Let's go back then to uh, Zechariah 3. Understand a few things here. I'll try to, to move on through this. Uh, he's telling us here that the temple has to be built and that Christ is coming to do His mighty work and how He will rise up out of His habitation in verse 13 of chapter 2 to do His mighty, wonderful work in Zion and that His people will be gathered there to do it. Now, let's see in the light of what we've just read in the Old Testament and in Revelation 1, what he says here, because this is speaking directly to those in Haggai and Zechariah who have come to build his temple. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the eternal, and standing, Satan standing at his right hand to resist him, or to make him be his, as it says in the Hebrew. And the eternal said to Satan, the eternal rebuke you, Satan, even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you, is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? So Satan was making accusation against this high priest, and God says, I plucked him out of the fire. Shut up, Satan. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. We're going to see the angels down here are the angels of the seven churches. And he answered and spoke to those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. Now, there are some who interpreted this, that as human beings, they were standing, and therefore it was their job to take away the filthy garments. Do people forgive sin? Well, they should, really, but God is the forgiver of sin that counts. And he's standing here uh, with Satan and the angel. Not people. The people haven't been introduced here except for the one. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you. Isn't somebody else's job to, to get this guy straightened out? It's God's job. He's the one that causes iniquity to pass. And I will clothe you with change of raiment. But some people have interpreted that that was their job. No. Doesn't say that. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head, a crown. So they set a fair crown upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the eternal stood by. So those standing with the high priest here are angels. They're not people. People will be introduced shortly here. This is happening between God and man, one man. And the angel of the eternal protested to Joshua, saying, Thus says the eternal of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my charge, then you shall also judge my house, and shall also keep my courts, and I will give you places to walk among these that stand by. That was the kingdom of God. Who was standing by? The angels. 
Satan, who was there to accuse, not people. And in God's, there won't be people in God's courts. There will be angels and glorified human beings. So then he says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you. So it's all been between Christ and Satan and the angels down to this point. Then it changes. <coughs> Hear now, O Joshua, you and your fellows that sit before you. It wasn't people, it wasn't the beings that had been standing there. This was Joshua who was teaching the people and they sat before him to do that. For they are men of sign and wonder in the Hebrew. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now, Christ is the branch of God, of course, ultimately. But Zerubbabel is also a type of Christ and is his servant, the branch. He's already brought forth Joshua and told him he would bring forth his branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Now, these eyes are the seven spirits or the seven stars of Revelation 1. And which, what has been set before Joshua here? One stone. That's Christ. Ephesians 2.20. He is the chief cornerstone. We're all little rocks in the building, but he's the chief cornerstone. And he is the one who is set before Joshua here as the high priest. To, for him to look to Christ. Uh, Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So God is involved here. He's the one who will remove the iniquity of the land in one day, and he's the one who is going to give us new names, engrave them uh, in his book of life and through eternity. In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So he starts working here with Joshua first, and then he goes on in chapter 4, and we're going to see more about the candlesticks and so on here. The angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. He said to me, what do you see? I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are on the top thereof. So he sees seven candlesticks, or a candlestick with seven lamps on it. And two olive trees by it, one upon the right side and one on the left side. And then he asks the question, what are these? The angel answered uh, and said to me, Know you not what these be? And I says, No, I haven't figured it out. So here's the answer. Saying, This is the word of the Eternal to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Eternal of hosts. What do we need to build properly? God's spirit. Isn't that what we just read back in the Old Testament? God had to give extra help to the craftsman to build the way it needed to be built. So you have to go to God to get His Spirit and not try to do this on your own because you can't get it done. 
Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace to it. So this Zerubbabel is going to have great power over the nations and so on, which we'll see shortly. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it, and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you. So somebody laid a foundation, started building, and it got delayed. It wasn't here. I'm not talking about us. It got delayed. But it's going to be picked up by the one who is currently out to lunch and isn't doing it. He laid the foundation and stopped. But God says, no, you got to finish it. There's work yet to be done. had not been built yet. For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. With those seven, they are the eyes of the eternal. So you have seven eyes in verse 9 of chapter 3. And you have Zerubbabel involved with the seven eyes as well. So Joshua and Zerubbabel both are involved with the seven spirits, the seven angels of the seven churches, the eyes of God. The eyes are spirit, Revelation 5, 6. Then answered I and said to him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? you got the candlestick, you got the seven lamps, and then you have an olive tree on either side of them. What's that? I answered again and said to him, Oh, wait, wait. He answered me and said, Know you not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the eternal of the whole earth. So here are two who will be standing by Christ and what he teaches and will be doing what he says to do. Now, there's only one other place that this is mentioned, and that's in Revelation 11. It says, these are the two that stand there. So we go back to the book of Revelation, where Christ says that he is involved with uh, the seven stars and the seven angels and the seven spirits of the seven churches, and he ties it to the candlesticks there in verse 20 of chapter 1. Uh, these are the seven churches and the spirits of those churches, the angels assigned to them. Then in Revelation 11, he uses the same thing that he said to Ezekiel, uh, chapter 10. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound that mystery of God should be finished, as he is declared by the prophets. And here a little book is given to him. Remember, Ezekiel was given a little book, and he was told to eat what was in it. And his, angel, his uh, tummy got bitter. It's, uh, it's referring to now. Ezekiel is a prophecy for the end time. So John took it and made his belly bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So whoever he's talking about here have to go ahead and do what God says, even though it makes your belly bitter to consider what all must happen when this 
message is given. Now, Herbert Armstrong did not do this because the things we're about to read about haven't been done. They're still in the future. Still got to be done. He didn't preach the gospel around the world as a witness in the end come. Didn't happen. All this stuff in chapter 11 has to happen before the end comes. <clears throat> so, immediately after that, it says, And there was given me a reed like a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and then the worship therein. So this has to do with the church of God, those who worship God. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not, for it is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. 1260 days, the time of the great tribulation, starting when the temple is defiled as soon as it's built there in Daniel. And I will give power to my two witnesses. Uh, they are around, but they haven't gotten power yet. They will be given. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now remember, they have overseen the building of the temple in the detail and according to the pattern, just like they were with Moses and with Solomon and so on. So they have to preach 1200 or 1260 days. These are the two olives and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. So this is what is being referred to there in Zechariah 4. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Now God sucked up the wood and the offerings with Elijah and the priests of Baal. He did it when Solomon got done with his prayer. He's going to do it again. It says so right here. Fire will proceed out of their mouth against the evil. Well, isn't that what God was doing with Elijah? The fire licked it all up, and then Elijah killed the prophets of Baal. Well, God showed where he was working, and he said, the rest of you are going to die unless you repent. And of course they didn't, and Elijah killed them. So fire will kill any who go against them. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, just like Elijah. Malachi 4 tells us that it's Moses and Elijah. The transfiguration, it was Moses and Elijah. The types are clear all the way through. Uh, Elijah shut it up that it didn't rain in the days of their prophecy. They have power over water to turn them to blood. Same things that happened in Egypt or Mitzrayim. Exact same things will be repeated again here in the end time and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So not just turning the water to blood, but all the plagues of Egypt can be enacted by these two who are given that power at the end. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified." It'll be a holy place when the temple and Jerusalem are built by God's people. And then the beast will defile it and take it over, and it will be the same as Sodom and Egypt. But it's the same place where Christ was crucified, right up here north of us. 
And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies for three and a half days, and they'll not be buried. They'll be laid there to be kicked around and laughed at. And the people will send gifts and make merry, and, ah, oh, we finally kill these two who are against our new world order and our global rule, those that have tormented them. And after three days and a half, they are resurrected, stood on their feet, and great fear fell on the televised world. And then they arose to meet Christ in the air. So this is what is going to be done in terms of the latter temple. It's going to be start being built out in the wilderness in a Jerusalem that has been desolate for many generations. And the gold and silver will be provided. It will be built to the specifications of Ezekiel 40 through 48. And it will be dedicated to God. And then the beast will overcome it and defile it. Now, there's one more. Revelation 21. I know I'm going a little over what I normally do, but it's okay. Here you have the heavenly Jerusalem coming down, and it has the glory of God, verse 11. And I saw no temple therein, in the city of God. No temple. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. You can't build a better temple than that. The Father and the Son are the temple. Do you see why he has used such great detail and given skill to build a temple the way it needs to be built? Because it represents the Father and the Son who rule the entire universe and are the ultimate temple forevermore. So when we build our temple, our mind and body, we need to come to be like them. If we build a physical edifice, as has been done in the past, and dedicate it to God, it needs to be built with the same care that was done in the past. Now, the God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And notice, the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory into it. So you won't need any lights. The Father and the Son are bright as the sun and will light the whole thing. And we will be there as the 144,000, the bride of Christ, letting our light shine to the whole world. Is it any uh, wonder why Christ would tell us in Matthew 5 and Luke 11 that we are to be the light of the world? Aren't the witnesses and those who stand on Mount Zion supposed to be there as a light to the world? Yes, we are. And he wants us to be as bright a light as we can possibly be to shine out to the whole world in a time of evil and utter darkness that Satan and the beast bring upon the world. We will be the only light because those who go into the tribulation who are in the church, lights are going to go out. 
Satan will come down and fight with the remnant of her seed and kill them all because they are not in the place of protection. They're all going to die. It says all the rebels that are here today are going to go into the tribulation and all die, man, woman, and child. All the people who are not protected by the wall of fire in Zion will die. About a third of them will repent before they die, according to Zechariah 12, I think it is. But we are to sit on Mount Zion as a light to the world. And our leaders are to go out as a light to the world, which they will hate. And the reason the belly is bitter is because of all the horror that has to come. You think of the horror that occurred in the land of Mitzri when those plagues came, and people trying to drink water that was blood, and fleas, and frogs, and all the things that occurred, and no rain. And they're going to happen again very shortly now. That makes your belly bitter. But we are to pray not plagues on the world, but thy kingdom come. Because then all this will be passed and it won't be anymore. So when you look at the Feast of Dedication, it's here for a very great reason. That which was built for God and dedicated to God was done with great detail, great precision, carefully with the best materials. I was going to go to 1 Corinthians 3 where it talks about you can build with hay, wood, and stubble or you can build with gold, silver, and precious gems. But fire will come and it will show which you have. The fire of tribulation will soon be here. How are we building? With the materials that God would have us do that are beautiful, that are valuable, or with things of lesser value that will be burned up. So we need to take heed to Moses, to David, to Solomon, to Haggai, to Zechariah, and to Christ in Revelation 20, I mean in Revelation 1 and in 21, and let our light so shine that the world might see and glorify God in the end.